This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. Last week was a big week at the Supreme Court for technology, as the justices heard oral arguments in a pair of cases involving Google and Twitter that tech companies say could change the internet as we know it. We're delighted to have Megan Ioria of the Electronic Privacy Information Center which filed a friend of the court brief in support of neither party in the Google case here with us today to break them down. Megan, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the cases themselves, I wanna wanna give the justices a little bit of a report card. So the justices are not known as being the most tech savvy uh, folks uh, in in the universe, um, and I'm not the only person who said that, and so I want to play play a clip from the oral argument. Unclear. On the other hand, I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the internet. <laughs> and so, before we get into the substance of the Google case, how did how did the justices do at the oral argument in terms of their tech savvy? You know, I I I think uh, Justice Kagan was uh, was very right <laughs> in this regard. Um, you know, there's there's a common misconception that uh, when technology makes decisions, it's it's more neutral than when humans make decisions, and uh, I think that kind of thinking was definitely reflected in many of the justices questions in actuality humans design technology and embed within it their own biases they design technology to achieve particular goals and the effects of those design decisions can be harmful no matter whether they were intended or not and the justices kind of tried to focus more on like what the intentions of Google's Google was and like designing its algorithm. And honestly, that's that's not really relevant. So, you know, Google's goal is to get and keep eyes on the screen to serve them ads to generate revenue. But the same algorithm can also be used to find people who are most likely to be interested in joining ISIS and essentially recruiting them by showing them a continuous stream of ISIS content. Uh, and that's, I think, something that just went over all the justices' heads. Ah, yes. So let's start with Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is the law at the center of the Google case. Why did Congress enact it and what does it do? So Section 230 was Congress's response to a very specific problem. How do we incentivize tech companies to remove offensive user-generated content without requiring them to do so, because self-regulation has been like the big principle in tech uh, regulation, on, you know, for good or for bad throughout the internet's history. Uh, so Congress created this, you know, quote unquote, protection for good Samaritan blocking and screening of offensive material. That's the title of Section 230C uh, and included two provisions meant to remove the incentives to content moderation. So one is the immunity provision uh, that protects companies from lawsuits when they take down offensive content. That's C2. C1, that's the provision at issue in Gonzalez, was meant to overturn a New York State defamation case that had imposed increased liability 
on tech companies because they moderated user content. In the words of the court, it treated the company as the publisher as opposed to the distributor of the defamatory material. So treating the company as a publisher was essentially putting the company in the same shoes as the user for liability purposes. They had to prove, plaintiff had to prove the same thing to hold the company liable as the user, as opposed to if the court had treated instead the company as a distributor, they would have had to show that the distributor had specific knowledge that what they were distributing was defamatory. This was a departure from previous ways that courts had been applying defamation law to tech companies. They had been applying the distributor liability. So, you know, Congress was concerned that uh, if they didn't do something about this Stratton Oakmont uh, versus Prodigy case, that tech companies wouldn't take up their cause to moderate content because they would have this increased liability. So this is why C1 says specifically what it says, that tech companies are not to be treated as the publisher or speaker of the user content. All right, so tell us a little bit, please, about Gonzalez versus Google, the case before the Supreme Court on Tuesday. What are the facts and how did it get to the Supreme Court? So this case was brought by a group of families of victims of a particular ISIS attack. And essentially the uh, the complaint had many different claims under the Anti-Terrorism Act. But one in particular was about Google uh, violated the aiding and abetting provision of the ATA because it recommended ISIS videos. Now, when the plaintiffs put this in their complaint, I'm not really sure that they appreciated what they had there. They had been just trying to get around, these, these attorneys had been bringing these ATA claims against tech companies for many years and had been running into the Section 230 issue over and over. And so they were trying to creatively plead their way to, you know, getting the tech companies responsible for for not taking down videos or content from uh, terrorist organizations uh, as quickly or at all as, as, the, as the lawyers wanted them to do. But because these these previous cases were very clearly about the content that the users had put up, they were quickly dismissed under Section 230. But once they 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 try they brought in this claim about the recommendation algorithm, they're essentially saying, well, this is something that YouTube uh, was doing. The recommendation is from YouTube, not from the user. And the way that this claim developed was. Um, <laughs> a little, a little bit uh, complicated in the lower courts, but you know the most generous way to construct this claim is that you know YouTube's algorithm is finding people who are good matches for ISIS and showing them ISIS content to recruit them to ISIS. So the lower courts throughout the country have adopted a very broad. Uh, view of Section 230 that you know we as as we argue in our amicus brief uh, departs 
from the history and the text of the statute. And essentially, courts have uh, allowed uh, tech companies to avoid accountability for many of their own their own actions uh, that are harmful to people. And in essentially saying if if the claim involves third party content and Google is acting as the publisher of that content, then the claim has to be dismissed. And and that's what happened in this case. So when they got to the Supreme Court, what was Google's argument? So Google is arguing that internet services have to present content in some way. And the way that YouTube does it is by taking user inputs and showing the user just what the user wants to see. And that this is a publishing activity. And so because Section 230 immunizes tech companies for publishing third-party content, then it immunizes Google from this particular claim. Did the arguments play out the way you thought they would? So... I was really surprised that so few of the justices were actually concerned with the text of the statute, that they seemed instead more concerned about what line they were drawing and that it was a good line to draw for policy purposes. And so instead of doing what courts are supposed to do, interpret the text of the statute, for instance, I was very surprised that Justice Thomas, who had written this dissent from the denial of cert in malware bytes, articulating a very specific theory of how to construct Section 230 based on the text and the history of the statute, instead seemed more focused on the underlying ATA claims um, and also in the line drawing exercise. And other other justices, such as um, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Kagan, um, and to a lesser extent, Justice Sotomayor, um, all, I think like almost all of their questions had to do with, well, if we decide for Gonzalez or if we don't adopt Google's rule, like won't we be breaking the internet in some way? Won't we be doing something that is bad for policy purposes instead of like actually looking at the text of the statute and saying, what does this mean? It's just, you know, not really consistent with what members of this court generally do, which is, you know, like the, the Justice Kagan's famous line, we're all textualists now. Right. And it's especially stark contrast to the way that the that the justices handled uh, the Dobbs uh, decision, for instance, where the conservative justices did not seem concerned about upending the status quo to the detriment of anybody who can become pregnant. But in this circumstance, uh, they were very concerned about upending the status quo to the potential detriment of billion dollar corporations. I want to go back to sort of I guess something that's adjacent to something you mentioned, at least two of the justices, Justice Kagan and Justice Kavanaugh, 
suggested that Congress, rather than the Supreme Court, would be the branch of government that would be best suited to make decisions about the scope of Section 230. So I have a couple of questions related to that observation. Is there any indication that Congress is likely to weigh in on Section 230? You know, there have been uh, several attempts to get Congress to amend Section 230 in in recent history. There was one successful one, the FOSTA-CESNA amendments, and there's currently a bill in Congress, the Safe Tech Act, that would fix a little bit of of, of the uh, lower court's um, bad interpretation of Section 230. But um, getting Congress to do anything uh, right now is incredibly difficult. And when members of the court say, leave it to Congress, well, I think they're essentially saying, leave the status quo. Yeah, I, I'm really aging myself when I when I make this observation. But every time something like that happens, I'm reminded of an oral argument. It was back in the Obama administration because Don Varelli was the Solicitor General, and someone made an observation kind of like that, like, isn't this a question for Congress, or shouldn't can't Congress change this? And Don Varelli sort of looked at the court, and he was like, "This Congress, like, you know, like again, like Congress is not getting a lot done these days." And so now I have, I think. Maybe it's just kind of an existential question. Um, you know, we, we played at the outset Justice Kagan saying these are not the nine, you know, greatest experts on the internet. Like, is Congress better? You know, I, I get that there's like the constitutional question of who's better at, at uh, who should be making these kinds of decisions. Is Congress better? Well, what I would say to that is that Congress already made a decision back in 1996. Fair enough. They, they enacted this law. Um, the, the law says a certain thing and courts should be doing what they are supposed to do, which is interpret what Congress said and not engage in the, um, in the policymaking that Kavanaugh and Kagan seem to think that this case requires, um, which is, what, again, why I'm so surprised that the text of the statute was so so little a part of the questioning. I, I think that uh, the very like there may have been two questions about, so what does it mean to treat a tech company as the publisher? And this this should have been what all the questions were about. Yeah, I when reading the briefs, I actually spent a lot of time just trying to wrap my brain around that. And then it turned out you didn't really need to spend a lot of time thinking about that for the oral argument, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, I want to move on to the the second case that was argued on Wednesday to spend a little bit of time talking about it. It's a case called Twitter versus Tomna. Um, can you just talk briefly about this case and in particular, how is it different from the Gonzalez case? Because if you talk about them in the, you know, it's sort of a high level of generality, it sounds like they're kind of the same case. Right. So Section 230, which is what the Gonzalez case is about, um, is about whether tech companies are immune from lawsuits. But if a tech company's actions fall outside of Section 230 shield, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're liable for those actions. Uh, the, the Twitter v. Tamnik case is about whether these tech companies are liable for their recommendation algorithms. And the specific cause of action 
is the civil liability for aiding and abetting a terrorist act that injures a person under the Anti-Terrorism Act. And based on the argument, what do you think the court is likely to do in the Twitter case? So I think that the the Twitter case is a much easier case than the Gonzalez case. And I think that the justices recognize that. And I think that that is probably partially why several of the justices focus more on the ATA claims in the Gonzalez argument. And that's because, um, as Justice Barrett said explicitly, the justices see that they can get out of the Gonzalez case uh, by finding for uh, Twitter in the in the Twitter v. Temna case. Because if the lawsuit can't go can't go forward against Twitter under the Anti-Terrorism Act, then it doesn't matter whether Google has immunity under Section 230 anyway. Correct, because either way, the case goes the case goes away, or rather, Google has a quick way to get out of the case if Gonzalez didn't state a claim under the ATA, which, by the way, goes to show you how bringing Section 230 back to its narrow purpose actually wouldn't lead to a crazy increase in liability or in in legal burden for tech companies because a plaintiff still needs to state a claim and those claims can be easily dismissed on the pleadings if they don't, even without Section 230. So we may not necessarily get a decision from the Supreme Court this term about the scope of Section 230. Yeah, unfortunately, it might have been a a little bit of a waste of time for the, I don't know, how many uh, briefs were filed in in, in (laughs) Gonzalez. It was great for the lawyers and the PR companies, let me tell you. (laughs) How many hours of of legal work went into this? Yeah, I'm just seeing the meters running in my head. (laughs) But fear not, we may have an opportunity to talk to you again in the not too distant future because lurking in the room at the oral arguments last week were two other cases involving social media companies and efforts by states, specifically Florida and Texas, to regulate them. Can you, before we go, just tell us a little bit about those cases and how they relate to the Google and Twitter cases? Yeah, so these cases are actually the flip side of the Google v. Gonzalez case. Google v. Gonzalez is about information that was kept up The net choice cases are about information that was taken down. And as far as Section 230 goes, those are two different provisions. The C1 is Gonzalez, C2 would be for the net choice cases. And C2 like pretty clearly protects companies from lawsuits for removing content in good faith. But there's also the First Amendment that that protects tech companies uh, from having their decisions to remove content uh, questioned. And, you know, so I will say for people who have day jobs and are not able to spend every waking moment pouring over the SCOTUS blog petitions column, the court last month, I believe, 
asked for the federal government's views in these cases. Perhaps the justices are interested in the Biden administration's views on these cases. It's also a cynical, more cynical view is that the justices wanted to kick the can down the road a little bit um, on these cases that so they didn't have to deal with them right now. So the justices are not going to take these cases up anytime soon. We probably won't know until the end of this term or the beginning of next term whether the justices will weigh in. But perhaps Megan will come back and talk with us about those cases if they do. Megan Iorio, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. This week, we have a question from Adam Miller, who asks what the opinion release days look like now that the justices are back on the bench. Um, So the opinion release days now look pretty much exactly the same way that they did before the pandemic. So as we come up on the three-year anniversary of the court shutting down for the COVID-19 pandemic, we are finally back to normal. Uh, I am down in the press room, so I have not actually been there for an opinion release, but the chief justice, the justices come out from behind the curtain, they sit down and the chief justice says, you know, as he did on Wednesday of last week, Justice Barrett has our decision in Barton Werfer versus Buckley. And then Justice Barrett reads a summary of her opinion. And then when she has finished, the Chief Justice says Justice Kagan has the opinion in Helix Energy Solutions. And the opinion release days also look very much the same in the press room. The five minute buzzer rings and a couple of minutes before 10 o'clock, all of the reporters who are still downstairs go into the public information office And we can hear the sound of what's going on in the courtroom. And so as the opinion starts to be announced in the courtroom, the public information office staff starts to hand out paper copies of the opinion, which they didn't do last year during COVID because there were no live opinion announcements. And so we go back to our desks and our carols in the press room and start to report on them. So really everything is more or less back to normal. The only real difference, and this is a difference for the better, is that when the oral arguments start after the opinion release has finished and after bar admissions, the oral arguments are live streamed. So hooray for that. Thanks so much for asking. We appreciate your questions. If you have a question, please send us an email at scotustalk at scotusblog.com. This episode was produced and edited by Eleanor Erskine with help from James Ramoser.